Hello and welcome to Double Reel, the monthly podcast magazine for the discerning film nerd. My name's James Adamson and I'm a film nerd with a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for that lovely introduction. It's good to be back. Now, this is our penalty shootout film quiz, which we've broken out from Double Room Monthly to give it its own episode for you quiz fanatics to get straight to it. Um, this is our fiendish and keenly contested uh, one-on-one quiz competition uh, between father and son. Uh, it's It's been a bit one-sided. It's 5-0 to James with a number of draws. We got a draw last, uh, last week, uh, last month. Uh, but James... Tell us, tell us about the quiz and, and and how it works. So basically, it's as as you've said, it's a penalty shootout quiz. We each get five questions. We ask each other five questions. Um, we even have a coin toss to see who goes first and gets a little lifeline in case they need it later on. Um, and yeah, at the end, we may have a sudden death if we need to, and if there's no winner, it's a draw. If there is, the loser has to do a forfeit, and it's usually watching a terrible film. There's not been a nice forfeit yet. Yeah, I mean it's 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 more than just a terrible film. It's a film we we've specifically chosen for the other person, which which, which they're not going to like. Uh, so my forfeit for you, which sadly I've never had the chance to enforce because I haven't bloody won one one of these yet, Fuck is the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, the probably archest and most Wes Anderson of Wes Anderson films. And someone who's not a fan of his, you're really not going to enjoy that. The last time you suggested a forfeit for me, which I didn't do because we the the it ended in a draw was uh the room is that still the forfeit for me that's a nice forfeit i think so yeah we'll stick with that one we'll that, stick is, with that, that yeah. is a nice forfeit yeah i mean there are, you know I'm, I'm considering if i ever do actually like you know my my ocd and desire for closure means i'm just gonna have to keep battling away with life aquatic until until i get to use it but future forfeits it's like i might sort of go you know i might say one forfeit I was thinking in the future that I might ask you to do is I'm going to select an old but good Steve Martin film and see if it changes your mind. That kind of thing. So it doesn't always have yeah, to, yeah, it yeah. doesn't it doesn't always have to be a sadistic forfeit. Do you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> although some of them have been. So the yeah, as you say, the blind ranking list is where each of us asks the other person to rank uh, a list of films or actors or something, but without knowing all the names on the list. So you get given the first name or title, and you have to rank it one to five before you've heard any of the others. So there's always a question of are you gonna, you know, are you gonna accidentally put something five that you should have put one? And whoever does best in that gets a gets to choose whether to go first and gets a lifeline that they can choose to use during the penalty shootout film quiz. So, James, would you like to go first or second in the blind ranking? Uh, I'll go first so you give me a blind ranking. I'll give you a blind ranking to do. Okay. So, ready? Yes, sir. I would like you to blindly rank this list of five films uh, that Russell Crowe has acted in. Uh, purely in order of what you thought of the film. Uh, it doesn't have to be what you think of the Russell Crowe performance. Just did how, how much did you like the film? Uh, you can, in fact, you can you can make it about its performance. You can you can rank them how you like. But rank these five Russell Crowe films. Right. First one to rank, Cinderella Man. Oh, now is Gladiator going going to be in here? I'm trying to think if Gladiator's not in there. Is there another? film of Russell Crowe's that I'd be happy putting first and I can't think of one. American Gangster he's okay like he's not um, I don't mean he's okay like he's just decent he's, it's not his best. Mm-hmm. Um, Russell, I'm drawing a blank on Russell Crowe films. 
Um, I will put it two in the hope that I can either think of another, or there's another good Russell Crowe performance or Gladiators in here. Okay, so, so that's two. Next one, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Oh, I didn't give a shit about that, so I'll go with four. Okay. Next one, Les Miserables. Oh. oh I really didn't like that, though. Uh, thing is, right, his performance in terms of acting, fine. Singing, no. Yeah, he wasn't suited to the style of the film at all, was he? He needed more, a bit it more help. should have been Guy Pearce. Um, it's going to have to be five, even if can, the Pope's exorcist is in here. It's still <laughs> not as bad as that fucking singing, man. Okay. The the next one, the penultimate one I want you to, uh, to rank is American Gangster. Scouse pause, thud. Third. Okay, so now the last one you've been holding out, you've been holding out, haven't you? The Pope's Exorcist. It is Gladiator. <laughs> yes! That's that, it, smash that. Yeah, you've done it absolutely flawlessly. I was hoping to double bluff you <laughs> by leaving Gladiator to last. You think, oh, he's not going to, but you know, I, I haven't caught you out. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's five out of five for you. Okay, what's my blind ranking list? Right. I want you to. It's quite hard to do these because we've done a fair few now. It's quite hard for me to remember if I've ever asked you these before. Yeah, I know. I, I know. Uh, can you rank these Christian Bale performances for me, please? Okay. Are you ready? Yep. So, number... Well, not number one. Your first film is American Psycho. Yeah, see, I really think his performance in this was absolutely brilliant. I'm going to have to think about what I think of, for example, if one of his turns as Batman is on here, do I do I rank that ahead of American Psycho? Because obviously, I like you know, I think The Dark Knight's a better film than than American Psycho because The Dark Knight is absolutely genius. Even as much as I like American Psycho, I'm trying to think, is there an acting performance of his that I think is better than him in American Psycho? Well, I not to help you, but if you said if if I had if I didn't have a Batman film on here or you put a Batman film here bottom because of performance, I would actually understand it when it comes to assessing the lists at the end. Mm-hmm. Because I don't actually think his performance as Batman it's it's hard to do like an you know a tremendous performance as Batman because you are wearing a a cape and a mm-hmm. cowl the entire time. So, if you put this above it, I would understand it because it's yeah, I know what you mean. There's ba- there's basically two different things about that. I think Christian Bale is a, a terrific Batman, maybe the best Batman, but because of how good an actor he is, it that's not necessarily doesn't necessarily put you to the top of his acting performances. I'm going to be bold. I thought he was absolutely tremendous as American Psycho. Absolutely incredible performance. I'm going to put that one. Woo. Okay, your second film is. The Fighter. Mm, this is what he wins his Oscar for. That's very now good. Now fucked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, as good, as good as he was in that, I'm still not too uncomfortable with him being ranked below American Psycho. Because American Psycho is just an extraordinary performance. Yeah. But it is his Oscar-winning performance. He is terrific. So I'm going to say two. Cool. The next one is... You ready? Mm-hmm. The Prestige. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See, he is very good in that, and spoiler that's alert, a, that's his sp- best performance. Spoiler alert, he has a dual role. I'm 
I'm still comfortable, although it's weird. I sound like <laughs> I sound like I'm, I'm answering this like Father Dougal, like I'm just I'm just ranking them in the order you read them out. I'll make that three, Ted. Uh, <laughs> but no, I think I think third. I'm I'm still comfortable with that. I'm still comfortable with that. Although I might, it, with, with retrospective, I'd known the Prestige was coming. I might have shifted Fighter and Prestige around, but I'm going to call Prestige third. Cool. Your fourth film is Empire of the Sun. Mm, it's very good. I, I remember that. I thought he was very good. I, rem- I remember there was a lot of publicity around that film, and it was a, it was a strong performance. And good as he was, I, I think he obviously, I think he surpassed that performance when he when he grew up. I'm, I'm going to call that. I don't think he was bad though, but I reckon there's probably something else good there. I'm going to call that five without any criticism of his performance. Oh, okay. Now number five. Uh, yeah, you fucked it. Extras, gods, and kings. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I'm going to call that fourth. The fact is, even if I'd got Exodus, gods, and kings right, I, I, I've I've probably got two and three in the wrong order on my list, and yours was absolutely spot on. So you win the blind ranking. So you you get to both choose whether to go first or second, and um, you get a lifeline over the course of the quiz. Okay, so I will. Answer a question first. All right, so I'll ask you a question first. Now, you have a lifeline at some point over the course of this. Okay. Question one in the penalty shootout film quiz with the, uh, the forfeits hanging over us. What shocking thing was Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, the first Hollywood film ever to portray? Oh, it was something like a kiss. A. Oh, you, were you going to give me one? I'm going to give you your choices. <laughs> a. A woman dressed only in bra and panties. B. A toilet flushing. Or C. A man cross dressing. I think it's the toilet flushing. You've got it straight away. It was something daft. Yeah, all three of those in the film, but only be the first time it happened is a toilet flushing. So yeah, that's correct. Could you imagine if it was like a Boxing Day jobby? An absolute fucking war crime. I think if you took all the people that were shocked and outraged at just the sight of the toilet flushing in Psycho, and then you showed them, I don't know, a man shitting My in a Boxing waste- Day shit, <laughs> or or. <laughs> Or, or the scene where a man shits in a waste paper basket in Van Wilder party liaison. Just no, no intervening years to get used to it. Just straight from A to B. <laughs> That's the first thing I'm doing if I ever get a time machine. Is I'm going to get someone reacting in absolute horror to that and show them the scene from Red Dwarf where the cat sucks a shit up into his ass in backwards. Or, ja- or one of the jackass films where they get the guy to like uh, poo out of vol- uh, like a model volcano. Oh. Right, there we go. So that was one. So that's that's one to you. One nil to you. Right. Your first question. I'm not sure if this is... Okay, I'm going to go for it. I'm not sure if it's too hard. I'm... What film was so scary that theatre staff allegedly had to carry smelling salts to revive guests? Was it A, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, B, The Phantom of the Opera, or C, The Exorcist. So, I'm a little bit, I was a little bit nervous that you were going to put the first Dracula film on there because that was another one there where you never know how much this is marketing on the part of the film company, right? 
and um, oh yes, uh, it's so scary that we have to have like ambulances and nurses on standby. Um, because Dracula was one. I think King Kong and Fra- the first Frankenstein film they had that. Um, I-, I happen to know this. The Exorcist was one. They had medical personnel standing by, including smelling salts for the Exorcist. That was a- that was a big thing at the time. Oh, we need a VAR check. We need a VAR check. So that's not the answer I've got here. So maybe I've been done a belter. Um, if if your answer is correct, I will give you the point. I have the Phantom of the Opera here. Which version? Uh, the the old one where the guy did his own makeup. But if the Exorcist had smelling salts, I, I mean that's just get, something. Get point, I, that's just. I mean I because I listen to the Mark Kermode podcast. I I just they talk about the Exorcist so much on there because it's Kermode's favorite film. I just knew that. Sorry, I I, I assumed it was the Exorcist. If it was only one uh, of those, no, that's that's fine. I should have picked fucking Wally or something. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the the ex, you, you never know. Yeah, they said they had people throwing up and fainting in the Exorcist, in, and it's look, it's a very intense film. We we can never know, right? Because by the time by the time I got around to watching the Exorcist, it was twenty years old, and by the time you get around to watching it, it's forty years old. We will never know what the impact was back in like nineteen seventy three. You know what I mean? Okay, so that that's one one. Um, my second question for you. I have a feeling you're going to know this, but I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna ask it anyway. What was the name of the hotel in The Shining? It's something Brook, isn't it? The Overbrook, or the Overlook, or the Cranbrook, or the fucking... No, the Cranbrook's the private school that Papa Doc went to in email. What the fuck is going on? Um, oh, something look. You, you, do have, you do have a lifeline if you want to, um, if you want to use it. I think it's the Overlook. I don't want to waste it. It's the Overlook, isn't it? It is the Overlook. Whoa. If you were going to use a lifeline there, I was going to give you the other options, the Stanley Hotel or the Timberline. Um, the reason for that is the Stanley Hotel is one of the hotels that inspired the film, and the Timberline is one of the places where they actually filmed some of the exteriors. But yeah, it is the Overlook. That's the name of the film, the, the hotel in the film. Wonderful. Okay, 2-1 to you. Okay. What was the first film to use profanity? Was it A. Gone with the Wind B. Rear Window or C. Psycho Okay. So I'm going to go with the traditional answer here because although it's not seen as a profane word nowadays it's the, it, this is a, a question that frequently gets asked like for example they they compared it to um, Rebel Without a Cause, which despite being quite shocking as a um, uh, as a teen rebellion film, there's actually no swearing in it. I believe what they're going for here is where Rhett Butler says, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn in 1939's Gone with the Wind. You would be correct. Okay, so that that's 2-2. Two, two. We've got some, some classic Hollywood questions here. Go to the Desmonds. That's right. Okay, so that's 2-2. That's two, two. Um, everyone's on serve at the moment mixing my sports metaphors there okay this is one where I think you you're a good shout for this actually question three John Williams has won five Oscars for his scores oh for fuck's sake on like scores for films 
Name any three of them. And you can have more than three guesses. You can have five guesses to get three films. Yeah, okay. And that's not a lifeline. That's just that's just well, fair. Fuck's sake, he's been nominated for about 55. Mm-hmm. So it's a case of... It would probably be easier to name five that he didn't win for. Mm-hmm. Um, when did he last win? Like, in the 90s, maybe? He must have won for Schindler's List. Okay. That okay. okay, that's one. Okay. Now, did he win for Jaws? Or is Jaws one of those ones where people appreciated it later because they were so obsessed with being terrified by the shark? I'm going to go for Jaws because I feel like Jaws is only appreciated because of the score. Okay, Not that, only, but... That, that's two. Yeah, Jaws was crucial. When they were having problems with the uh, with the actual mechanical shark, they, they, they leaned very heavily on John Williams there. That's two. So you need one more of his other winners. So I was banking on that, and I'm going to go for the first Star Wars because I know he won for that. Is the correct answer. Absolutely smashed it. Okay. You, you were also right, by the way, that the 90s was the last time he won an Oscar for a school. Is that Schindler's List? Yeah. Fucking 31, 32 years. It says once he's won five, you know what the Oscars are like? Oh, they've already won. We'll give it to someone else this year. That kind of thing. Uh, the other one, the other ones he's won for that you didn't say. I mean, you had three guesses, so you didn't get any wrong. Daft one in the uh, E.T. he won for. Fuck off. Take it off and give it to Hans Zimmer. <laughs> I don't think Hans Zimmer did anything in 1982. I don't give a fuck. Um, and the other one he won for way back in the day was Fiddler on the Roof in the 1960s or 70s. I don't think I've ever seen that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an old, old musical. It's one of those things that's just generationally, it's not a thing anymore. But yeah, yep, three out of three for you. Right, so this is your... This is my third. Your third question, right. I don't know if this is too easy or too hard. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But we'll go for it. Which film holds the Guinness World Record for the biggest stunt explosion in cinema history? Now, I don't know if this has been smashed through. This might be a bit old information, but it was the record at the time. So if you say that, um, then that's fine. Uh, so... A. Oppenheimer. B. No Time to Die. Hmm. Or C. Spectre. Okay, why are there two Bond films on there? <laughs> you see, I was I thought it was going to be something like some of the big explosions from back in the day, like the Cecil B. DeMille stuff or Things like that, um, and all, and all, and all of these war films. If this helps you with the the visual, mm. this record says that it used sixty eight tons of TNT. Um. Now, Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer spe- Spectre. What was the other one? No time to no die. No time to die. And you've got Oppenheimer in there. That's a recent one, isn't it? So has that just taken the record? 
Okay, so here's the thing with with Oppenheimer. Obviously, could, the reason I'm the reason I'm struggling to get Oppenheimer out of my head is obviously it's meant to be a nuclear explosion, right? So obviously that's going to seem big, but it's it'll cast my mind back. Did, did Nolan do some jiggery pokery? That's the thing. Yeah, He's one of those directors where you think, did he just get someone to light a match? And yeah, like a fucking bomb. That's the thing. This is the whole thing. I mean, it's it, he he said he wanted to do it without using CGI, but that doesn't mean you know you can't have an explosion that looks like a and you know, anything anything he did. Um, to make to make it look like a nuclear explosion was going to have to be enhanced with visual effects. They're just practical visual effects. No time to die. I'm trying to think of the explosions in that. How much was that? But obviously, they, there's a lot of there's obviously the big explosion at the end where the the, the the jets fly over and blow up the the airstrike takes out the um, uh, uh, the complex. Oh, see Spectre. I do remember. I do remember. Right, he f- I remember thinking, "God, he fires one shot with his pistol and blows up Blofeld's desert lair." What the hell is going on there? But, but no time to die in Oppenheimer. The explosions in the film are bigger explosions. It's fucking airstrike in No Time to Die, and it's the nuclear explosion in Oppenheimer. Oh, all right, all right, all right. Okay, look. Just because it's like. It's going to be a bigger surprise for it to be Spectre because it's not like a nuclear film. I'm going to say Spectre and cross you my fingers. And that's correct. Now, there might be a new film since then, but I don't yeah. care. <laughs> oh, wow. I do remember that being a massive explosion and Spectre was more like, people criticised it at the time, didn't they? For it's just it all being about silly sort of silly set pieces and not enough story. But yeah, that's three. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the film's terrible and then there's just an explosion out of nowhere and everyone, it's almost like Daniel Craig kind of shrugs. He's like, okay. Yeah, I fire, you know, fires one bullet, it blows everything up. Is it lunch? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, okay. So that's three, three. Okay. Um, this is the fourth question for you. Which of the following films had the most Oscar nominations without winning any awards? American Hustle. I'll give you the three three options. <laughs> A, American Hustle. Funny if you said that. <laughs> B, Gangs of New York. C, The Color Purple. And you, you do have a lifeline here. So it's American Hustle, Gangs of New York, The Color Purple. This is where my brain goes to shit because I always think Whoopi Goldberg was in The Color Purple and got the award, but she won for Ghost, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. She was in The Colour Purple. Um, so American Hustle was nominated for 10, I think. Fuck, it's so long ago. That was probably one of the last years I properly was invested in the Oscars. Not like I don't pay attention now, but I was like I stayed up for it um, mm-hmm. because I wanted to see uh, if Twelve Years a Slave won. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was ten. So Gangs of New York, Gangs of New York nominated for more than ten. Just just to be clear, there's no trick questions here. All of these films were nominated for a lot of awards and didn't win any. There's no kind of like you know jiggery pokery. Trying to think if what Oscars. Gangs of New York would have been nominated for if it got nominated for 10. So I imagine there would have been a nomination for Daniel Day-Lewis because it's Daniel Day-Lewis and then Martin Scorsese and Best Picture and all these ones. 
but did it get nominated for things like Best Score? I know it probably got nominated for Art Direction, maybe Costume. I'm going to rule out Gangs of New York because I don't think it got nominated or it may have got nominated for the same amount as American Hustle. I know American Hustle was just... Um, Ah, Colour Purple. Colour Purple was probably nominated for a fuckload. It's just probably, it'll be like a discrepancy of like one Oscar, won't it? Or two maybe at most. Mm -hmm. Like one will be on nine, one will be on ten, one will be on eleven or ten, eleven, twelve. Or... I might use my lifeline here. Okay, I'll give you a lifeline. It's not American Hustle. So I'm going to go for the Colour Purple then, just because I'm not confident that Gang of New York was nominated for that many. Okay. So, American House was nominated for 10 awards and didn't win any. Yep. Gangs of New York was nominated for 10 awards and didn't win any. The Colour Purple was nominated for 11 awards and didn't win any. Woo! So, lifeline used, question answered, four out of four for James. It's getting, uh, it's getting tense. It's another tight one. Okay. Which Shakespeare play has the most movie adaptations? Is it A, Romeo and Juliet, B, Macbeth, or C, Hamlet? Which so it's which of those has the most adaptations? Yeah, and we're talking about about film, yeah, not like TV and stuff. It's just yeah, film, not, yeah, not, not a film like that they've. You know, they've recorded one at the Globe, like they've got Kenneth Branagh to act in one of the Henrys kind of thing. Yeah, so it, it has to have been made for a cinema release. Yeah, so it's yeah. not so it's not like a national theatre production yeah, that then showed gosh. in the cinema. It's not one that they did for television. It's, you know, like Branagh's Hamlet, Branagh's Much Ado, blah, 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 blah. Um, tell me the... It was it was it Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth and Hamlet were those the yes. nominations? Note the Lion King does not count. Right. Okay. See, Romeo and Juliet is so popular. You know, it's the one that everyone does at school, all of that. I feel like Macbeth, even though it is Shakespeare's best play. And his shortest, it's the one that should be the best for adaptation because if it's not as long, it's easier to kind of cut down for screen time and it's his fucking best play by Miles. But I just feel like maybe that's, even though it's his best, I, I don't think it gets adapted as often as Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet. Um, hard to do well, as that recent uh, Fassbender adaptation showed. So I think it's between Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet. I, why am I leaning towards Romeo and Juliet? Because they had that, obviously had the Leo. I mean, it's been done in different languages. I'm sure the Russians have done one. We're, we're not counting like adaptations by another name, right? Because because if Liking doesn't count, West Side Story doesn't count either, right? No, it's pure. It has. It, it has. It, it has. Okay, it has to be. Of course, there was the. 
There's the Olivier one as well, the Olivier Hamlet. Did Orson Welles do Hamlet? Ah. Uh, I wonder if maybe because Leo's done that version that, that maybe they said, oh, we can't, it's not, you know, don't try and compete with that. God, come on. Um, oh, fuck it. I'm going to just choose one. Hamlet. I don't know. Hamlet. Correct. Is it close? Is it close? Is like one like really far off the other or anything like that? Or? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot out there. Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet, there are loads, but um, Hamlet does does win. Okay, all right. I just wondered if maybe it was like <clears throat> not a lot in it between the two of them or anything, but okay. All right, that's four out of four each, four each. Okay, which of the following films or roles in films did Tom Cruise turn down? A, A Beautiful Mind, B, The Shawshank Redemption, or C, Wall Street. So only one of these films, in only one of these films was he actually offered the part and said no. No. Shawshank, was he offered the Tim Robbins role? Because he would have been way too young. Or am I just thinking that because Tim Robbins was slightly older? Mm. Tim Robbins is like five years older than, like, or six or seven years older than than Tom Cruise. But I think by that time he was he was looking like a man of his age, whereas Tom Cruise still looked in his twenties. To be fair, Um, yeah, I mean Tom Cruise still looks like he's in his forties now that he's sixty. So I'm going to rule out Shawshank. Just based on that, I just don't think, don't think he would have been. Maybe I mean everyone wants everyone wants Tom Cruise in the film, unless you're Katie Holmes and Nicole Kidman. Yeah, look, I, I have to say I did check these very very carefully because there was a time where Tom Cruise would be considered for like every role ever, and I, but I, I went through each one of these and specifically checked whether he'd been formally offered the role and turned it down. So I'd, I've tried to be very careful with it with this question. The other one, Wall Street, is that the one that came out in 1987? 1987, Oliver Stone, yeah. So that would have been prime time young Tom Cruise because he'd just done Legend and, you know, Top Gun. So, or a beautiful... Do you know what? When did A Beautiful Mind come out? 2001? 2001, yeah. I feel like that was Tom Cruise's era of trying to do films to win an Oscar. Remember, what did he do? He did Vanilla Sky mm-hmm. and did he, not, did he not do Magnolia around about the same time? And I feel like that was him trying to get his kind of acting chops mm-hmm. recognition as opposed to the blockbuster star that we all know him for. So I'm leaning towards that. Ruled out Shawshank. Wall Street was Charlie Sheen and Michael Douglas, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Which they redid with Shia LaBeouf. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I'm... I will go for a beautiful mind. Is the right answer. Oh. 
So that basically you, you, you've got it spot on. In, in at that time, he was looking around for some of those kinds of properties, and he opted to do Vanilla Sky instead of A Beautiful Mind. Right. I don't know how he'd, how he'd have done it, Beautiful Mind. It'd be very interesting to see him take on that kind of acting challenge. But he went with something else, Vanilla Sky. Um, but he was formally offered that. Shawshank Redemption is a slightly different story. Basically, when they were looking to make that film, he'd just done A Few Good Men with um, Rob Reiner. Yeah. Frank Darabont was all lined up to do the Shawshank Redemption like a year later. And Rob Reiner, as sometimes happens, directors call each other up and say, look, will you step aside? Let me do that. I'll let you do this kind of thing. Rob Reiner said, I really want to do Shawshank. I'd love to do it. Will you let me do that? Because I think I can get Tom Cruise. But Frank Darabont said, no, I want to direct it. So while there was a discussion of whether Tom Cruise would be in the film, he was never offered it because Darabont never agreed to let the film go. And Tom okay. Cruise and Tom Cruise was never in his plans. And um, Wall Street, Tom Cruise asked to be in the film, basically lobbied, auditioned, wanted to be in the film. But um, Oliver Stone had just um, made a film with Charlie Sheen, Platoon, and had already agreed to cast Charlie Sheen. said, sorry, I've already got someone. But Charlie Sheen, that's one that Tom Cruise wanted and didn't get, uh, which is why it was in there. So that's five out of five for you. Another high quality showing, mate. I need to to slot this one away to stay in the game. So... Which, um, this is going to be a bit of a confusing one to word, but I'm going to give you four Tarantino films. Mm-hmm. Two of them are joint for the lowest amount of deaths in his films, and mm-hmm. you need to name those two. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, I'm not going to give you the, uh, the body count. So, the four films are Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. Kill Bill Volume 2, mm-hmm. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm-hmm. and The Hateful Eight. Okay, and we're only talking about on-screen deaths, right? Yes. Um, because, for example, there's this discussion in Reservoir Dogs that Michael Madsen's character has basically just started shooting people to death during a heist, but we never see it. We only see what goes on in that warehouse, right? No, so... It's not been named. So in Glorious Bastards, you see the death of about 300 Nazis in that scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's obviously a lot higher than the films I've, yeah. I've mentioned. And uh, Django and Jimmy basically shoots up an entire mansion mm-hmm. of racists. So that's why that one's not been named. Okay. You see those people die. Sure, sure. So, yeah, exactly. And, and so it's deaths that you see on screen. So Reservoir Dogs, you see one of the... You see, actually, you see Tarantino's character slumped down in front of the steering wheel, and we assume he's dead. You see the woman who guts, who shoots Tim Roth in the gut, and he shoots her. So there's her. The cop gets killed. The cop that gets tied up. There's three already. Tim Roth shoots Michael Madsen just before he's going to set the cop on the light. That's four. Then there's the the standoff at the end where uh, Lawrence Tierney and Chris Penn get killed. That's like five and six. Do you see Mr. Blue, the old guy, get killed? But you're, you're already on like six. So there's a fair few get killed, but it's a small cast. Um... Now, once upon a time in Hollywood, you do see Leonardo DiCaprio kind of 
spray that flamethrower around. So are we, are we portraying though? Uh, does, do we do we actually see any? So let me clarify. So in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he's in a film where he kills a load of Nazis mm-hmm. in the film. It's it's a very weird way to weird uh, world this one. It's people that actually die in the story of the film. In the story of the film. Okay, okay, okay. That All right. Up, okay, so Hateful Eight. Basically, everyone dies in Hateful Eight. Only there's like one person alive at the end. So there's there's a body count of seven for you. Maybe more if you count the person who's gets like the uh, the proprietor of the sort of saloon who gets killed at the beginning. Read out the names of the films for me again. Uh, what was the first one I said? Reservoir Dogs. Dogs. Kill Bill Volume Two. Yeah. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Hateful Eight. Okay, so Killville Volume Two—that—that's that's the one that doesn't have as high a body count. Because obviously, in Killville Volume One, you see loads of people get killed in that big sort of uh, battle in the in the Japanese nightclub, and Lucy Liu gets killed, and all, you know, uh, Vivica Ray Fox gets killed. Sorry, spoilers for all the Tarantino films out there, listeners. Sorry, <laughs> um, uh, but in Kill Bill Volume Two, obviously, she kills Bill at the end. Spoiler. Sorry. She kills um, uh, what's her name, Daryl Hannah, and I think there's one more. And you say there are two that are tied on the lowest number of deaths. Uh, yes, there's two. That yeah, have, uh, the same. Length. Yeah, and in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, how many people? How many there's how many hip how many hippies get killed at the end? Fucking hippies, aren't? Uh, when Brad Pitt sorts them out and Leo uses his flamethrower on one of them. So no hateful eight's like seven, and I know uh, Reservoir Dogs is like six. Okay, I I think it's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Kill Bill have got a lower body count than the other two, so it's those two. So your answer is Kill Bill Volume 2 and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yeah, yeah. Smashed it. Both have three. Both have three. Right, I thought it was like roughly that, man. Okay, all right, so... That's fucking Sir Blaine, by the way. That was eight marks for this question. (laughs) Eight fucking marks. (laughs) Yeah, all right, five, five each. We're into the tiebreaker. So you get a tiebreaker question first, yeah? Uh, yes. Uh, so I don't, I don't know whether you, this is either going to be dead easy for you or going to be one you're going to have to guess or and, and work out. I, I just don't know whether you know this or not. This is your tiebreaker. Which role in an MCU film was Emily Blunt forced to turn down due to scheduling conf- conflicts? A. Um. So these are the roles, these are the characters. So A, Black Widow. B, Agent Peggy Carter. Or C, uh, Jane Foster, Thor's girlfriend. So she was due to be, like, chosen to be the person to play that part in whatever MCU films those people appeared in. She had to turn it down. She wanted it, but she had to turn it down due to scheduling conflicts. Another film she couldn't get out of. Which one? So she was first choice ahead of the person we actually got. Which one of those was it? So, there's a couple of ways I'm going to look at this one. So, I feel like 
it's a bit too on the nose for her to play. Who was it? Peggy Carter. Just because she's very similar to Paley, uh, Paley Atwell. Paley Atwell. Haley Atwell in terms of British actress, very posh kind of... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you know I'm trying to say? Like, maybe that that's just like a, you're trying to throw me off there by saying that. Um, what was the other one? Black Widow and... You hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, the other one? Yep. Sorry, I thought you were just. I, I thought you were thinking out loud. I was trying not to interrupt you, mate. So the the choices are Black Widow, Agent Peggy Carter, or Jane Foster, Thor's girlfriend, who eventually becomes um, uh, Mighty Thor. I don't think she would have been considered for Jane Foster. I don't know why. Not that she couldn't have done it, but. Huh. I I have a feeling that you've put those other two in there to throw me off the scent of Black Widow. I don't know why, because Black Widow seems like it's just so solid with Scarlett Johansson who, you know, made the character her own and everyone, you know, got used to her playing uh, Black Widow. The obvious one does seem like it's Peggy Carter just because English posh. Um, it's hard, isn't it? Because oh, what films? What do you mean the film Black Widow or just the character Black Widow? She was she was first choice. So for all of these, she was the first person, first choice to play. Uh, that character in all the MCU films they appear in. So when Scarlett Johansson makes her first appearance as the as Natasha Romanoff who becomes Black Widow, which I think is Iron Man two, yeah, yep. and Agent Peggy Carter. I think the first time she appears in an MCU film is Captain America: The First Avenger, <clears throat> like whenever that is, and Jane Foster and Thor. They're all around about that time, but it's it wasn't a case of oh when they do the Black Widow prequel, cast someone instead of Scarlet. No, it is. Um, um, Emily Blunt was going to be the actor to play these character, one of these characters at the time, and and had to turn it down. Okay, so Jane Foster first appeared in two thousand and ten. Black Widow first appeared in two thousand and ten, and Peggy Carter first appeared in two thousand no two thousand eleven for Thor two thousand and they're all they're all pretty close together as I recall. I. I don't think it's Jane Foster, just going to rule that one out. I would have initially gone for Peggy Carter, but the fact that Peggy Carter's in there has kind of made me suspicious of Black Widow, but then I think, did they really pick someone else over Scarlett Johansson? I'll go for Black Widow. Bite the bullet. Fucking hell, correct answer, mate. I could feel you wavering on that one. So um, on that, she was offered it, wanted the part. I think there's even some photos. I mean, I've seen some photos of her in the costume, but that could be someone photoshopping. Um, but she was contracted to make that Gulliver's Travels film with Jack Black, and couldn't get out and couldn't get out of it. She was so desperate to play Black Widow. Who wouldn't be? Um, and she couldn't get out of it, so they moved on to Scarlett Johansson, which is slightly surprising because it just feels like Scarlett Johansson was like that. That's just naturally should have been her part from day one. But and and she's made it her own so much. But yeah, that was going to be Emily Blunt. I'm sure she'd have been really good, but it's it's hard to imagine anyone else playing that part now, is it? Yeah, yeah that's just 
that's just kind of what threw me off it. Mm, yeah, it's hard to imagine, but yeah, she wasn't, Scarlett Hansen wasn't first choice. And I don't even recall Emily Blunt being like a hugely big name back then. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't feel like they'd have gone, oh, we must go with Emily Blunt because no one's heard of Scarlett Johansson. But it's just the way it went, right? One of, one of those casting what ifs, which is a uh, look back up, look back through our back catalogue, folks. is a really fun um, podcast we do all about those kind of casting choices. All right, so that's the tiebreaker. Now, if I if I get mine right, we call it call it even, or or I lose and it's six nil to you. Let's see how we go. Okay, now I want to double check this. Right. Who's the first female director to earn over $100 million at the box office? Was it A. Catherine Bigelow B. Penny Marshall or C. Greta Gerwig? Penny Marshall, Catherine Bigelow, Greta Gerwig. Yes. Okay, so let's go through Catherine Bigelow's... Uh, that first film she did, that she co-directed with Willem Dafoe, didn't make a lot of money. Then she did Near Dark. I don't think that made $100 million. And Point Break, as I recall, because I remember I had some email correspondence with that guy who worked on some stuff with Catherine Bigelow when I was researching the, the Joan of Arc thing. I remember him saying Point Break was a hit, but not a big enough hit to give her like all the juice that she could ever want. I've got the feeling that, that maybe came in just under a hundred million. Greta Gerwig. Now she obviously earned a ton of money for Barbie, and she did pretty well with um, uh, with Little Women. I'm sure that was over a hundred million, but that's in the 2010s, isn't it? Are we saying that no? Little Women must have been roughly the same time as Wonder Woman, which made like a load of load of money as well. So Penny Marshall, what did what did she do? Did she do big? Big must have done quite well. Was League of Their Own her? She's from around about that. I can't believe that it took until. Um, uh, I can't believe that it took until. Little Women and Greta Gerwig for a female director to get 100 million at the box office. There must have been more since then. So it's down to Penny Marshall and Catherine Bigelow. So did did Point Break maybe get over 100 million dollars at the box office, and that beats a league of their own because Point Break was 91, and uh, Penny Marshall was league of their own was 92. But Big, big was a big was a successful film, wasn't it? That's 88. Ugh. Maybe it because back then you could like if Big did ninety million, it's probably a good film, uh, like a good return at the box office in nineteen eighty eight. Ninety million is probably a big hit, and that's that's not a hundred, right? So I just feel like Catherine Bigelow's always been a bit more cult than she did Blue Steel in ninety, and that, that no that no, that didn't do well at the box office though, did it? Uh, big and league of their own. It's got to be Penny Marshall. Correct. I tried to throw you off with Greta Gerwig there because she's obviously very current and recent. I thought maybe he'll be in Norway. It did. Gi- it did give me pause for thought that maybe it's one of those things that it was so long to wait before a a, a, a female director got a big film. But so Penny Marshall, which one was it? Was it League of Their Own or was it Big? It was Big. Right. Yeah. Tom Hanks back in the day. All right. Well, I tell you what, that is another high quality quiz. Six 
correct answers each. The tiebreaker hasn't been able to separate us. We will call that a draw. I think what's going to happen is, right, because we've obviously had a high-quality quiz and it's a draw, we shouldn't have to do a forfeit, but I think the quiz is going to get so hard at some point. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question. Like, what was the name of the fucking rear grip in Jaws? What, fil- what a, film am I thinking a, about now? Yeah, it's be, yeah, exactly. It'll be a 0-0, and then we'll just have to go, yeah, right, we're having to both do a forfeit. Forfeit, yeah, okay. Yeah, and the thing is, we're both such, like, we're both competitive quizzes. So, yeah, very good. All right, another strong showing, no winner. The score remains 5-0. Thank you very much. Well played, James. Thank you for listening to the latest Penalty Shootout film quiz brought to you by Double Reel. The score remains 5-0 to James after another high-quality contest with no winner. Thanks to my co-host, James Adamson. Thanks also to Podbean for hosting and Audacity for editing. We are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. The first part of this month's issue, Double Reel Monthly, is available to download now with news, new releases, reviews of new films and our new annual projects. In a few days, we will deliver the next part, The Features, with the theme of films about films and the film industry generally. This includes our classic Robert Altman's The Player and hidden gem Ed Wood. The one that got away is the story of the unfinished Orson Welles film The Other Side of the Wind, and our remake Hate Watch's Marilyn Monroe biopic Blonde. Until next time, stay safe, watch lots of films, and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media.